This is Pop Tech Nation. The weekly show where we talk about the most interesting stories taking place in the publishing and technology world. This is the week of July 13th, 2015. I'm your host, Shovik Paul, and I'm joined by Mike Ram. How's it going, Mike? I'm doing great. Summer's in full force. It's nice and hot outside. Everyone seems to be on vacation except for me, but otherwise, I'm doing pretty well. If you're joining us for the first time, this podcast really highlights all the exciting and hot news covered in the publishing and technology world, and we're going to go over those with you in some headlines, and we'll do some deep dives into some of these topics. Should we get started, Mike? Let's do it. Here are the headlines. Time Inc. made four big acquisitions in this last past week. Wall Street Journal reported that Time has acquired Sports Signup and LeagueAthletics.com, which basically provide online management tools to youth sports leagues that then allow parents, coaches, and players to check information such as schedules and statistics. And overall, these between these two businesses, they serve about 8 million athletes. Uh, that's about 300,000 teams, uh, 8,500 leagues. Uh, and uh, the third acquisition was a company called iScore Sports, uh, which sells apps that are priced about $9.99 each for fans of baseball, football, basketball, and soccer. And these apps enable users to create digital scorecards and track games play-by-play uh, as they unfold. Time Inc. also announced the purchase of Invent. Um, Mike, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's basically I-N-V-N-T mm-hmm. as an experimental company which uh, which specializes in live media and creative services. Mike, this is a really interesting trend, right? So I think it was last year the Tribune acquired a company called Grace Note from Sony for $170 million. And, and that was really a, a – Grace Note was at that point primarily focused on – being a music data platform, but then Grace Note then went and acquired a couple of other companies. Uh, one was called Infostrata, another called Sports Direct, uh, I believe for a combined total of $54 million. Mm. And those two acquisitions focused on sports data. So what's the deal here? I, I know you're a huge sports fan. Uh, first of all, speaking of the acquisitions time made, uh, have you spent any time on on any of those uh, companies or their platforms? I'm looking at the list right now. I haven't. I've never heard of any of these companies, but it looks like tons of acquisitions are happening on Time's side, and and all of these are related to this youth sports vertical. So clearly, it's it's a lucrative one. Uh, I think you get that intersection of like parents with their kids, so you get you know some of the the young generations along with parents that are tuning in, and that app that they bought, which is like that scorecarding app. I mean. If they can integrate these successful niche products and you know expand from there, it should work out well for them. I know it's a very lucrative um, niche for publishers is, is the youth sports vertical. Well, I guess if, if they have millions of users, uh, as with uh, uh, leagues, athletics, and sports lineup, it seems like there's about you know as I mentioned earlier, eight million users. That's a lot of eyeballs. Yeah. So it really becomes an ad play for sure. For sure. 
Publishing Executive reported that Harvard Business Review is loosening its paywall this summer in an interesting move to attract new audiences and capture email addresses. So for the months of July and August, non-subscribers that were now faced with this sort of paywall where you get 15 free pieces of content, now if you register, you give your email, you're getting extra content. Um, it's... It's back to this whole paywall, uh, you know, conversation. We talked about Pando. Well, it was in last week's mm -hmm, podcast, mm -hmm. which which was all about them you know, launching a, a paid paywall, where going you in the opposite content. direction, almost, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, th this is great. This is basically this. Uh, it's a topic around using data as currency. Um, you know, HBR is not as I know they do have a paywall, but this move seems to be, hey, you sign up, give us your email address. That's obviously worth something to us. We're going to market to you in other channels um, and get some free content. So it's this similar topic using a paywall. But instead of asking for, you know, a hard dollar, two dollars, five dollars a month, it's just share some data with us. So I think that's actually a pretty good deal for the user. If you ask me. And Mike, it's this isn't anything really new. Right. I mean, in the offline world, you, you would say share some data and we'll we'll send you free copies of the magazine for a certain period of period of time, you know, and, exactly. and then you, you have to pay for it. So it's not that it's anything groundbreaking or revolutionary that's going on. It's just now starting to happen more mm -hmm. in the digital Yep, environment. Classic give and take. You give up a little bit, and and people are, I think, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are are, are more okay with partying with their email information than that ninety nine cents. So I bet you they'll get a lot of conversions and hopefully, you know, ramp up on their their database at least. Yeah, I would think it, this would this would work for you know better known brands. Mm -hmm. um, always does. It, it, it always <laughs> does. It, it's still. Uh, you know, the question still remains, what happens if you are a mid-tier or smaller tier brand? Mm -hmm. You know, are people willing to, A, pay for your content, so can you ever have a paywall? And B, if you do have a paywall, how do you get more people in? Right. Uh, so interesting. Something I, I feel like we're going to have a lot more discussions about these in the upcoming weeks. It's one of my favorite topics. I'm personally pretty cool with it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So moving on, um, Mike, we, we didn't cover this in last week's podcast, uh, but I wanted to make sure we reported this uh, in this week's. Uh, Apple, and, and I'm sure everyone's heard of this by now, uh, Apple basically lost its final ebook anti antitrust appeal with the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, last, or I think it's now been about two weeks ago, mm -hmm. uh, which basically found that Apple colluded with major publishers to raise the pricing of ebooks. Uh, following the launch of the iBookstore. Right. And uh, the bottom line is Apple will have to pay $540 million in the settlement. Yeah. It, when we when we were looking at the headlines this week, I was like, that's a lot of money. But then you asked me a question, uh, is it is it really a lot of money? I guess I'm looking at a $750 billion company. Maybe the settlement is really not that what, big what is of a that, deal like one, one week's worth of uh, iPhone sales? Yeah, I think that's <laughs> literally what it is. Isn't that what yeah, it is? So maybe not too tough so, for them. So, yeah. And, and look, I mean, you know, there, it, it, there's also another question I always had, which was, you know, why didn't Apple just settle this before? I guess they had to go fight it. Uh, why not? Mm -hmm. You have the best lawyers in the business. But it almost seems like, they would have been better off just settling this and, and letting it, like sweeping it under the rug and just moving on at this point. It's possible, know? yeah, absolutely. And uh, another story this week, the Kindle, uh, which already allows readers to post passages and highlight quotes. That's something I do when I'm reading books on Kindle so I can go back and see what's interesting to me later on. Uh, it looks like they've actually integrated a few more channels. So now a reader can share highlights um, through the Facebook Messenger app, 
WhatsApp, email, and a few few additional channels. It almost feels like this is um, in reaction to a headline we had uh, either a week or two ago with Librify, which is um, which was bought and, and predominantly known for its Facebook sharing. So. Um, yeah, I, I think this will be interesting, and I think the more ways that you could share from your reading experience on a Kindle is better. Uh, I don't see this as being major, but it's definitely worth noting. You know, I, so I read books on my Kindle. Mm -hmm. I, I, I read magazines on my iPad. Do you, have you ever shared, like, in, in this case, what they're doing is they're making it easier almost if, if I'm reading, let's say, a nonfiction book, and mm -hmm. I get to a certain part, and I'm like, wow, that's a really interesting quote. I want to share this quote with you, Mike. Mm -hmm. I can instantly send it over or, or perhaps tweet about it. I, I don't, me personally, I actually do that with magazines more yeah. than I do with books. I guess I'm just in the zone when I'm reading my book, uh, especially on my Kindle. I'm lying in bed reading at night. I, I just, I don't think about it that way. Yeah. Personally, I don't, you know, if I, like I said, if I highlight things, it's for myself to, to kind of re-reference uh, later on. Um, and I think with books, it's kind of strange, you know, like it's like the forever spoiler alert type of thing. You don't want to share something that if someone is, happens to be reading the same book as you, you don't want to give away things. So I think it's a nice feature. Uh, I'd love to see how many people are really sharing from a Kindle book to Facebook. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting form of having a discussion mm -hmm. around a certain, let's say I reach chapter six and none of my friends are reading that book, I guess it makes it uh, a very interesting form to then say, okay, I just finished this chapter. This was the last quote, or this was some paragraph that, that was a real cliffhanger. I want to talk about this with somebody. It allows for that type of a conversation mm -hmm. to happen, happen with, with a much larger audience, maybe that, that you're not friends with yeah absolutely um, so it's interesting it's interesting so uh moving on the business insider reported that apple watch sales are tanking dun, mm. dun, dun. i think everyone i think everyone had the same report by the way. <laughs> yeah 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 we saw this in a lot of different places it's also really interesting mike because we as part of the last podcast that we did covered the apple watch in in detail and what this report was what basically said was you know this analytics firm called slice intelligence uh reported that sales of the apple watch have dropped about 90 percent right since uh, it had been released and, and it was very sensational obviously got a lot of headlines here's the thing mike i, I looked at the report and by the way again for for the uh, listeners who are joining us for the first time you know we talked about this last week i have been wearing an apple watch since it came out there are pros and cons mm -hmm. right um it's still very early uh to tell what's going to happen as a user i feel like it's a new technology it, it doesn't have native apps so so it's somewhat limited in, in terms of what it does but my problem looking at this report is number one Apple hasn't released any official figures yet, right? And just to be clear, what Slice Intelligence, this company that reported this 90% drop, they compile this using figures from e-receipt data, right? Which uh, it gathers from large groups of, co uh, of consumers who basically volunteered their purchase information. So, so there's, they have an app, right? It's like a shopping assistant apps where you can uh, look for bargains and then you, and that includes the Apple watch and users can like track their spending and then they report in okay. if they bought a watch. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine, and by the way, it's US only, right. which also, as we all have probably seen some of these reports, you know, the, the Apple gold, uh, the gold watch sold out in China. So all of that is not being reported or taken into account in this report. 
I just think that, you know, it's easy to sort of uh, bag on Apple and say, yeah, yeah, here, hey, 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 this thing didn't just didn't work, uh, rather than really looking at the whole picture. And as far as publishers are concerned, I think it is very early to say if some of these magazine or newspaper type publications that we're now seeing on the watch are actually working or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it with the first thing you said, which is Apple hasn't yet given figures on this, so it's completely speculative. I, I mean, it's classic like clickbait. Everyone wants to know about what's happening with Apple and the watch sales. It's sort of unverified, so let's see. Let's see what happens. Yeah, we're going to keep keep definitely as part of this podcast, keep a close eye on, on wearable technology. 100%. And sticking with the Apple theme, PubExec had a, a short but interesting article called How Digital Publishers Can Use the New iOS 9 Features to Increase Subscriptions. Um, I don't I don't think we need to talk about the whole article because a couple of things it was... It, it was, was a great article, by the way. It was short yeah. and sweet. It, it basically uh, pointed out four things. The first two are things we've discussed, like for Apple News, the new Apple um, RSS aggregator, like go submit your RSS feeds, you know, hopefully you'll get approved and maybe featured. And then it also talks a little bit about the transition away from the newsstand folder, which if you want to learn more about that, you should check out the first, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, a dive into iOS 9 and the removal of newsstand. Specifically in this article, what I thought was interesting was um, two topics. One of them was the new spotlight search. So this is really interesting and it's not really being talked about that much of all the announcements we heard from WWDC. Basically, Apple is improving their spotlight search. That That's the field when you're on your iPhone or iPad and you like, but basically pull down on the home screen and you could search for anything. Um, you could search for, you know, keywords from an email that you wanted to find, or, you know, you could type in keywords and find uh, an app that they suggest. What they're doing is they're actually allowing for basically indexed content inside an app. So for example, if I'm, you know, there's show magazine, a magazine that you're the publisher of this fictional publication. And two, two episodes ago or two issues ago, you had written an article about the Apple watch. I can actually type in Apple watch and you might not have any keywords for your app that are related to Apple watch, but because there's indexable content inside the app, I can now discover your app through keywords and content that exists inside the app. It's basically bringing SEO to the app world. And I think it's really interesting. That's huge, especially with news apps. I mean, I, I'm assuming that's just going to be, look, I, I personally have also always felt that uh, the search in general within the app ecostructure was very lacking, yeah. right? It, it still is. It, it still is, right? So you would have to first launch the app, go into the app, uh, assuming you have that app, right. you know, for a particular newspaper or brand, then search within that. And what you're basically describing here, it's I can just be on my iPad, search for even an app that I don't have installed. Right. Is that right? That, that's exactly it. It's it's literally no different than when I go to Google and, you know, I've been cooking a lot with my uh, new fiance and and I type in, you know, best, best practices of, you know, uh, chef knives. And, of course, I find some article for allrecipes.com and I end up on that site and then I'm like, oh, this website's great. I'm going to bookmark it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit it. It allows that Google-esque 
discovery that we're all really used to on the web, it actually allows that to happen in an app. It doesn't force you to find the app in a way where, hey, I'm looking for a new, you know, cooking application. I'm literally just looking for, you know, reviews of chef knives. And if there is a review of chef knives of, you know, a back issue or something like that, if that is a web-based piece of content um, and it's indexable, it, it really brings a new level of search. So, so discoverability has a whole new face, which is definitely one of the biggest problems with app development, right? Is getting people to download huge, your app in the first huge. place. I, and I think that's maybe Apple's response to publishers complaining about discoverability, uh, discoverability of their apps. Right. Do you think um, this is something that like publishers should be asking their develop? You know, if you have an app, I mean, should you be looking out for this? Is this something that you're going to want? Yeah. Or, or, or the fact that it's now going to be available to end users, I think that's just going to 100 percent drive, uh, hopefully drive app downloads and and. You know, Mike, keep those chef knives away from your fiance. You know, <laughs> we're only a couple of weeks into the engagement. I think we're, <laughs> okay. we're, we're okay. Well, once you get to the guest list, what I would recommend <laughs> right, is right, keep right. those knives away. Keep them away from her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, tech TechCrunch, and, and and this is this is really interesting. TechCrunch reported that the Google Glass is alive. Uh, and, and, and this is really funny because live and well, or uh, just, alive? <laughs> just, just alive. Uh, and, and really this is interesting because we heard so much hype about the Google glass. What was it like a year or two back? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they had their Explorer program. We actually ha- had some chance to pl- mess around and play around with the yep. Google glass. Uh, it was a unique experience. Um, and, uh, there were clearly some issues apart from it just feeling and looking awkward on your face, the reality was the battery life was just terrible on those things. So here's what TechCrunch is reporting uh, with the uh, re-release or, or, or the new version of the Google Glass. Rather than it really being a consumer-facing device, this particular version will focus on the enterprise market, right? So here they've uh, updated, and then I should say it's rumored, uh, to have a larger display, uh, it's going to have a improved battery life because the device will now be running on the Intel Atom CPU. And uh, interestingly enough, it will have the ability to connect to an external battery source, right? So where I think this now comes into play rather than, oh, I'm going to just respond to tweets from my Apple Watch. It, it's more about, hey, look, uh, as a medical professional, I can see uh, your uh, data from your last visit. Or if I'm in the factory, I can see what's happening uh, in in the factory floor and things like that, and getting live feeds and so let's see what happens as yeah, far as publishers cool. go. You know, what what do you think the implications are? It's like it's like almost everything else we talk about in the show. If if consumers are using it and it, it provides a platform to make your brand relevant, then you should take advantage of it. But we'll we'll see we'll see if this the last round of Google Glass didn't really work out exactly as they planned. So let's just keep an eye on it. And make sure we um you know stay stay in tune on on this subject. Let's take a quick break, Mike. Today's show is brought to you by Lynx. That's L-Y-N-X. Now, Lynx is a free app that you can download on iOS from the App Store. We have been using it a lot recently, especially prepping for this show. It's awesome. It's so, awesome. so can you describe to people yeah. what Lynx is? If, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, download it now. It's L-Y-N-X, Lynx. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an app to not only discover, but also to share content. And, and I think the sharing aspect is really what we should highlight because when you are reading something inside the app, 
And by the way, they have extensions. So you could be reading something in Safari. You could be reading something on your desktop. When I want to share something with my fiance or with my coworkers or with my friends, you basically can share it through links. And what happens is the person gets a visual inbox of all these different articles and podcasts and whatever it is that you want to share. So the idea is instead of me emailing you show, you know, a couple of art headlines that we should be covering on the Pub Tech Nation podcast, I just links them over to you. And then when you have time, you basically go there and check it all out in one single place. Yeah, Mike, I mean, it's it's been so helpful for us in particular prepping for this show because in the past we would email each other mm -hmm. a bunch of links I know with me all the stuff that you would say hey maybe we should cover this on the show mm -hmm. would end up in my regular inbox and it would uh, I would quite frankly have to dig through them you know uh, by the end of the week and the beauty of this is it ends up all organized in one particular folder inside of this app mm -hmm. it's also visual so I'm not guessing at what these URLs are it gives me a beautiful picture from the article along with the headlines when I then tap on it it opens up the headlines I can then reshare it and and as you mentioned, it's great because I do. I've been using this directly from my Chrome browser. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's cross-platform, and I think the last thing we should definitely mention is that it's also just got great articles in there. Like when you are have some free time and you want to find something to read, they're basically scraping the most trending articles across the internet in a whole bunch of different categories. So it's great, even if no one sent you anything and you're just looking for something to read, they have great stuff in there, and the interface is awesome. So Amazing. check it out. Check it out, folks. All right, moving on. Back to the headlines. So the New York Times announces that they are going to be publishing on WhatsApp to be covering Pope Francis's trip or his upcoming trip. I love this article. It says it starts off with the unique confluence of New York Times readers, Pope watchers, and WhatsApp users. Who is a New York Times reader, Pope watcher, and a WhatsApp user? That might be like five people on planet Earth, but I, th I think it's cool. It's no different than, you know, WhatsApp is the largest messaging platform in the world. It's no different than like Snapchat getting into discovery. You know, it's it's diversifying. And I, I mean, we'll see. I mean, maybe a lot of people are, are excited to get their Pope Francis news through their WhatsApp account. No, I don't it, know. It's smart, Mike, because I think that WhatsApp, especially on a global level, is used a lot. Right, like when I'm traveling huge. in Asia, absolutely uh, huge. I think over a billion users. Yeah, I, I feel like everyone uh, in that part of the world uses WhatsApp, and this may be a great way for the New York Times to introduce their brand to an audience that that uh, here in the U.S. Of course, we go to New York Times, mm -hmm. and, and we're really well uh, aware of their brand. But but it's a great way for them to to get sort of global exposure, which I think is is amazing. And 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 at this point. You know, what worries me about all of this is it's becoming so fragmented, Mike, right? As a news organization uh, or a media organization of any kind, mm -hmm. you had to before worry about print and then the web came along and that was great. So you had to worry about print and, and your website. Right. And, and, and I feel like now you have to worry about, okay, there's uh, Facebook, there's Pinterest, there's Twitter, there's WhatsApp, mm -hmm. there's Snapchat. How are publishers going to be able to keep up with this sort of, you know, ever-ending list of new platforms that keep emerging? It's really intense. You're I mean, the answer. I, I don't know. They either need to work with providers that can make this scalable for them, or maybe they just need to focus on specific platforms. Maybe not every platform is right for every brand. Um, so it'll be interesting. Let, let's see if WhatsApp gets a lot of coverage um, or a lot of people using it to cover this uh, or, or to read about this story on Pope Francis, and then maybe it might be another channel that we have to think about.
Well, I'm assuming it, it also makes sharing easier, right? If I'm already on WhatsApp, I that read part, something. That part they have down to a science. Yeah, right? that's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, let's see how it does. So uh, this week, uh, Mass Digital uh, released a study of 1,000 magazine apps, which run on iOS and Android, which showed that apps and digital pl- publishing platforms uh, or digital publishing apps overall are starting to really pick up and in some cases really thrive. And so, Mike, here are some highlights from this study, which was really interesting. Again, these cover a thousand live apps uh, across iOS and Android. And uh, one of the interesting things was the total app launches across these 1,000 apps increased by 132% uh, between the year of uh, 2014 to 2015. Also, the total digital magazine views increased by 149 percent between 2013 and 2015 mm-hmm. and according to this report there's I mean, we were just talking about sharing uh, the total amount of sharing has has really gone up specifically with magazine type content okay and, and but the highlight of this was that it's the sharing unlike Twitter and 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 other like Pinterest it's happening in a private forum so with 70% of users choosing to share articles privately using email mm-hmm. and, and messenger services again over things like Twitter and, and the study also showed that uh, 63% of the magazine consumption and this is no surprise occurred on the tablet specifically iPads than over phones, right? Right. So, so was any of this really a surprise? I mean, to me, that the sharing stuff is, is interesting. The tablet, you know, the fact that more people are reading magazines on tablets—that's really no surprise. I, I think I tend to do that. Most users do that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, tablets being in my in my case, I look at it much more of a lean back technology. I'm I'm home, you know, I'm watching Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. My feet's up on the table. Now's a good time to read a magazine versus on a phone where I'm typically doing other things. Now, we've been hearing a lot of news, Mike, on on sort of how this whole industry, especially with apps and magazines, they're on the decline. Mm-hmm. This, again, I, I think this is the most comprehensive report we've seen, uh, which, by the way, if you, if you go to our uh, Twitter feed, uh, PubTech Nation, or Facebook, you'll see the links to all of these, so you can do a deeper dive yourself. What's interesting is all of these show a a upward mm-hmm. trend. It looks I'm looking at all these data points and you're nothing strikes me as being too uh, unnerving or or surprising rather. And it's good to see that I mean look Maz is producing it looks like over a thousand apps. So the fact that on average these numbers are all going up, that's great. I mean look it doesn't mean that publishers should take their foot foot off the pedal, right? There's a lot going on with iOS 9. We're going to have to see how Apple News plays out. And we're going to talk about that actually in a few headlines from now. But essentially, these numbers look pretty good. I think keep the foot on, on the pedal. Let, let's make these apps even more engaging. Let's, let's, give, let's give even just a moderate, you know, uh, let's call it a moderate fan of a website, right? Not, not the person that bookmarks like the, uh, the, the website, the person that kind of stumbles in once in a while to Forbes, for instance, let's make sure that, that person has a reason to really launch Forbes almost every day. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's good to see that these numbers aren't declining, but magazine publishers that have apps, they definitely need to make sure that they're, they're providing ways and reasons for people to crank that app open on a daily to weekly basis. I think. Yep. Great. Awesome. So the Huffington Post reported that Bloomberg's What is Code feature was a massive 
hit. So what is code was a 38,000 word, people are calling it opus, because <laughs> it's not really an article, it was more of a short book um, that they wrote, it was last month. So it actually, this article, what is code, took up the entire issue of Bloomberg last month, and it was the most sold copy of the year. So it sold more copies than any other issue to date. The exact web traffic, I'm not privy to, but I know it was it was immensely popular. And if you're listening to this, you got to check out this article. Again, it's the size of a book, but there's something so interesting about it. But it was it. really well written, Mike. Like, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. It, the basic topic was basically explaining code or at least the foundations of computer programming languages to non-technical people um if you kind of fit that mold which to be honest i mean show we're both in that mold right we, we talk yeah. about technology all, all day every day but, but we're I not programmers like these days everybody is right like everyone wants to know more and, and i think that's part of the reason this has been so successful is it's not something that was really written or at least I, the way i looked at it I understood what they were talking about, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Uh, and I think anybody going going and reading this would understand it. it. It's. I feel like more brands should be experimenting with this type the, of content. They, they should, and like and like, let's like really just quickly break down like what's different about it. I mean, again, one, it's extremely long form, and in a world where we say everyone's attention spans have gone right. uh, out the window, I think it's interesting that this mini book was so popular because you know what? Forget about all the clickbait tactics and you know turning things into listicles because if it's a listicle, it's going to drive three times as much traffic. All these like you know sort of heuristics the, the, and rules the of thumb speedification of the world yeah it's yeah. it's you know what to me they scrapped all that and they said this is a topic that almost everyone's going to want to know about so let's create something that's super informative fun and check it out on the website specifically what is code at bloomberg because the entire web experience is awesome there's like a little widget and they ask you to code things like throughout it and it's very interactive and if only they could know that something like this was going to get so popular beforehand, it would probably be an amazing... I mean, this article should have been sponsored by a single sponsor, you know, a sponsorship <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that uh, right. some marketer would have paid big bucks for, right. but who knows how, like, what's going right. to be huge and what doesn't. So it's interesting. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, quick note, Barnes & Noble's announced that they have appointed uh, Ronald Boyer. Is that how you say it, Mike? Uh, so. The current head of... Uh, and he's the current head of Sears Canada to serve as the CEO of Barnes & Noble Retail Division, and he starts that off in early September. So, you know, it seems like Barnes & Noble is making some moves as they as they really need to and figure out the retail uh, side of their business, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, Ronald can make that happen. Absolutely. So our, our, our last headline of the day, we're going to elaborate on a little bit, but it's an article that was posted by Fast Company. It was titled, Apple saves publishing dot 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 for itself. And really what this article was all about is this impending move for iOS 9, which is that uh, Apple is going to open up ad blocking extensions for Safari. So let's do a quick, I, I was, when we have okay. topics like this, I like to just do some basic background so people can walk away with at least learning maybe something they didn't know about. Ad blocking is not new. Ad blocking is something that's been going on for years for almost the entire ad blocking industry is almost entirely predicated around desktop experience. So you can go, there's a whole bunch of different plugins you could add to your Google Chrome or Safari, for instance, on your desktop that basically makes it so ads don't render, pre-rolls, display ads, the whole gamut. So, so Mike, you were you you come out of the ad tech world. That must mm -hmm. have been really frustrating for you, right? I mean, it's 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 scary. I, I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's scary. The U.S. market is actually um, less affected by ad blocking. It's something like 15% of people are blocking ads in the U.S. or incorporating these ad block 
TikTokers, where in Europe and in Asia, it's up 30, up to 50% of people. And also the younger you go, when you start to look at millennials or even like like early 20 year olds, a, a, a far greater percentage of these people are using ad blocking technology. Is, is that because they're more savvy? So they know how to install the plugins? I think so. Mm -hmm. I, I really do think so. Um, and, and in, in other words, given the choice, everybody would probably do it. Well, it's just I mean, that's, that's like the existential question of web publishing and advertising life is, right. can we make it so these ads are actually not a bad thing? Right. In other words, they need to be more relevant. They need to right? be more relevant. The problem is I'm yes. looking at some, half the ads that get served to me are, are irrelevant or, so uh, irrelevant or obtrusive. Right. right. So that's why, I mean, there's no secret or there's nothing strange about the fact that people have sought out these ad blocking technologies let's fast forward to what apple's doing and by the way they didn't really uh you know this was not one of the things that drake came out and announced at wwdc it's something that was more in the fine print of uh of the ios 9 uh, referendum but basically uh apple is allowing third-party developers to develop apps that basically will block ads in safari it's as simple as that so is it going to come um rolled out as a default no but it looks like Apple is going to allow you to download this app and then all of a sudden start blocking your ads on your mobile device. And let's let's also uh, state this, 25% of mobile traffic, and this might be conservative um, because I've, I've heard that it's even more, but I read this morning, 25% of mobile traffic is specifically coming from Safari. So what's going to, when iOS 9 gets flicked on, are, are publishers just going to see this massive decrease in mobile traffic? Hmm. What, like, what do we do with this? What do publishers do? Well, I mean, yeah, if I guess, uh, well, it's interesting, Mike, because it seems like Apple's involved in all these sort of antitrust lawsuits, mm -hmm. and this is sort of going down that same path, isn't it? it, it, it it's, 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 isn't it basically saying that, look, you know, we're going to block ads, but I'm assuming Apple's not going to block their own ads, so it, it's, it's about the only way we can guarantee that your ads are going to be seen is if you advertise on our network. Right, yeah. And, and you know, it, it, this just might piss off enough people that there is some sort of backlash, and let's talk about what that could be. But but you're right, this is a genius move for Apple. I mean, it's basically, for the user experience, like the everyday reader doesn't even know what a CPM is or, or has no understanding about the fact that, like, you know, their web page is being funded by advertisers. So it's going to be a beautiful user experience. The web pages are loading about, in some instances, 90% faster because of how much memory and space it, and bandwidth it takes up to serve these ads. So it's a better user experience. It completely messes with their arch nemesis, Google, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. ad traffic will be even lower. And, like, what's going to happen here? Is it going to be, like, this push where publishers are forced to push people to the new Apple News app because advertisements are being served there because Apple controls it. Um, it just seems like it could be a really genius move by Apple. But look, if you are a web publisher, which I know a lot of listeners are, um, you have to wonder what this is going to do. And I've read some suggestions about what possibility, how can the publishers defend themselves? And a few just to note them is, um, you know, potential solutions um, on how you can react to this is number one, pay the ad blockers. Which actually happens. Google actually <laughs> pays certain ad, very popular ad blockers to not block Google ads. So that could be a possibility. Um, develop native advertising. It sounds a lot like, hey, listen, if you pay us, we won't we won't break your store. It's, it's in the physical it's world. Vicious, right? It, 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 it seems it kind of vicious. Seems so crazy. It me. really does. And and I mean, the second thing is develop native advertising because you know that there's one company that hears this announcement and just doesn't care, and that's BuzzFeed. 
because BuzzFeed does not run a display impression or pre-rolls. Everything is native. Um, everything is the, the marketing message is weaving into the content beautifully. So that, I mean, this doesn't affect a BuzzFeed, right? Right. Right. Which is really interesting. So it definitely is a one up for like advertorial. Um, uh, of course, the freemium model, which we talk about every week, which is okay if, if trying to get people into a paywall or into our app where they have to pay for content. Or um, the last suggestion in this article I read was um, basically, you know, kind of plea with your with your reader, you know, put up a little banner that says, um, can you donate through PayPal or maybe become a, you know, donate a monthly donator, basically asking people to, to pay for it out of the goodness of their heart, which I know can work and, but yeah, good, might not. good luck with that strategy. Exactly. Uh, no, but, but, but it is true. I mean, it's, you know, ad blocking in general, I, I it's something I guess we don't think about on, on the other, on the publishing side of the business. We're like, well, you know, if, if I put in an ad, of course, everyone's going to see it and, and, and what you're basically describing is that landscape is really about to change. It's been hard enough, you know, that, that, you know, we have to take into account not just CPM, CPC, CPA. There's, there's all these new metrics that we're looking at on top of that. All of the, them now get skewed because potentially no one's seeing it that has like the numbers you described, 15%. I mean, that those are pretty high numbers, but I can't imagine it what can, happens when it gets to like 50%. Really grow. It's looking like it could really grow. And the cool thing is that all these things are really connected. The paywall stuff we talk about, mobile ad blocking, new ways to monetize, it's all connected. And we're going to have to see all this stuff plays out. I have a feeling that the end of this year is going to be a really telling and pivotal point with iOS 9 and all these other things that are going on across web publishing. Definitely Great. exciting times. Exciting times. Uh, that is it for this week's uh, episode. Uh, I want to really quickly, I have a correction from last week, Mike, uh, in last week's headline, uh, which, you know, while we were reporting the acquisition of Librify by mm. Scribe, I'd incorrectly stated that Scribe was started in 2015. It actually got started, it was started in 2014, and they raised some funds in that year. So I wanted to just uh, mention that. Thank you all for joining us today. That wraps up this week's show. Uh, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. And if you have some recommendations on topics that we should cover in future shows, uh, please drop us a note at pubtechnation at gmail.com. Also, if you hear anything that you agree with, disagree with, uh, want us to go into more in-depth discussions Absolutely. about, please make sure you, uh, you join in on the conversation. Send all feedback our way. We'd love to hear it. And also, once again, a huge thank you to our sponsor, Lynx. It's L-Y-N-X. If you have an Apple device, um, an iPhone or an iPad, download the app. It's Lynx. If you're on the web, go to linksthat.com, L-Y-N-X, that.com, and check it out. It's a really great service, and we would love to get some uh, you know, reactions to it if you want to write us in about your experience with Lynx. Thank you. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Mike. See you next week. See you next week. See you next week.